And I told him it felt like uh, a coach or a commander or some sort of leader giving a speech to his team. Uh, guys, we got to press on and we got to stand firm. Uh, and, and those of you who know me well, I, I like these kind of, uh, these kind of passages. So uh, this, is, this, is a, this has been a fun week to look at this passage because that's very much what happens here. The, I titled this sermon, Press On and Stand Firm, because that's exactly what Paul says in this passage. And as I was thinking about this, there's two illustrations that sort of conflated in my mind that I, I think show us the big picture of this passage. Here's, here's the first illustration. Um, you know, there little things in, in, our, in our world, our creator world, often contain within them the prospect of a much larger power or ex- expanse. For example, we watched the movie Oppenheimer a few, few uh, weeks ago, and in that, it's the story of, the, of the, the making of the atom bomb, but really it's the story of the scientists who discovered what was contained in, in the atom and the power that it had, both the power to destroy a country through the bomb, but also the power to uh, bring electricity to a whole city, just in a little atom and the discovery of that. Or you think about the study of DNA. Uh, just in a DNA strand is, the, is all, all that it takes to be a human being. And the, the map of the DNA uh, configuration is just incredible. But what lies in there is something very powerful for the or, making of an organism. Uh, but one of the ones that the scriptures use a lot is the idea of a seed and how it becomes a tree. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the idea that you walk around and you see the little acorns laying all over the, the ground, and then you look up at the glory of the oak tree. Everything that it takes to be an oak tree is found in that little bitty acorn. It's mind-boggling to think about that that oak tree comes from that little acorn. But that's the exact illustration Jesus used, and actually what's contained in the totality of this passage, what Paul is saying, is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about Christ and his, and his forgiveness and resurrection, is a seed that's been placed into the earth, but into your heart, if you're a believer. You have within you the seed of the gospel that contains everything the kingdom of God is about. Have you ever thought about that? That's a little bit overwhelming to think about. Within my heart is this seed that one day is going to be a full-fledged kingdom of righteousness and justice and joy and mercy and love and forgiveness that is the kingdom of God. So that's, that's the first sort of illustration. The second is the language of this passage, and, and a lot of times Paul would use this language, is the language of a racer, a, a runner. Uh, competing for a prize. You know, he, uh, 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 a runner races to get a prize, and he uses that language, run, in such a way as to get that prize. So what you have in here is a very athletic sort of paradigm. But, but what, what I was thinking about was it's, a, it's actually a race that's a total blowout. Uh, you think about the um, Aesop's fables, uh, the, the tortoise and the hare. Uh, the hare is clearly the better athlete, speed, running, but he gets distracted, he gets, he, he gets arrogant, he gets lazy, and the, the tortoise beats him. Uh, the, there was a blowout. Tragically, you know, my, my family and I, we've been involved with Tate's Creek football for years, and we've experienced our share of total blowouts. Uh, and what happens in a blowout in a football game is the clock runs incessantly because the refs don't want to stand there and watch this madness keep going and the parents don't either and and so they run the clock and the team that's winning by an incessant amount of points puts in their second string their third string and usually their eighth graders so we can kind of speed this thing up right it's a blowout but here 
Paul tells us the kingdom of God coming on earth in Christ is a total blowout. Sin is done with. The devil is done with. Death is done with. It is no question the victory is here. It is a blowout. But what he says is don't mail it in. Don't put the second team in. Don't get distracted. Don't get arrogant. In fact, do the opposite. Because it is a blowout, press on. Stand firm. It's certain. The victory is yours. That seed is planted and it will grow and have its full completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So, my brothers and sisters, press on. All right, those are the two things in my head. So now, listen to this. This is a quote from one of the, one of the commentaries I read this week. If Christ has seized you in his amazing grace, you must not rest on your laurels. Direct your investment of aspiration, imagination, time, energy, resources toward the precious prize that Paul pursues. Rivet your gaze on the goal, on the prize that he finds irresistibly attractive, and run with all the strength and stamina that Christ will give you. So that's our charge this morning, to press on and stand firm. Let's see how Paul instructs us. Let's start with verse 12. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You need to see two things here. One is Paul's humble ambition and his, his example. When I say humble ambition, Notice twice he says, I have not already obtained this. I have all, not already been made perfect. All the stuff that Luke preached on last week about Christ identifying in the death of Christ and, and, and uh, excelling in the resurrection of Christ and living in a new life with him. He says, after 30 years, this is him 30 years into his relationship with Christ, I haven't obtained it yet. I'm not perfect. This is so freeing to hear. Here's the apostle Paul saying, I'm not there. There's still work to be done. But I press on. I haven't obtained it, but I press on. What do I press on? I press on to lay hold of that which Christ laid hold of me. The work's been done. The victory is won. The blowout is happening. Christ has brought it to me. Now I lay hold of that. I press on. Paul's point is that he is striving to seize the prize at the finish line because Christ has already seized him at the start of the race. Friends, this, 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 this is so encouraging because it gives you freedom in two ways. You are free first to say, I'm not complete. I'm not there. I struggle. I have my ups. I have my downs. Some days I look like a great follower of Christ. Some days I don't look like a follower of Christ. Paul says, I, I get that. And you're free to acknowledge that. But the second thing is you're also free to grow. You're also free to pursue that for which Christ has pursued you. You're not stuck. You can go, you can take a step forward. You're free to struggle and you're free to strive. It's arrogant to act like you have become already a full-grown plant, isn't it? It's arrogant to think that, to think, oh, I've arrived. But it's equally as arrogant to do nothing with the seed of the kingdom that was planted in your heart. Don't fall off on either side of that arrogance, We'll have none of that, right? As kingdom of, of, of God people, I admit, I've got so far to go. But whatever God has put in me, I'm gonna cultivate and grow. 
and I want to press on. Love for the kingdom means that we humbly acknowledge our ongoing shortcomings, but also make it our aim to press on and lay hold of the kingdom more fully. Notice what Paul says here. Paul's imperfection doesn't keep him from pursuing growth. He says, this is what I do. One thing I do. Whenever you see that in the scriptures, you've got you to perk up. One thing? Oh, wow, give me the one thing. You know, it's like a bookshelf's full over at our thing. One thing for a happy life and for a healthy bank account and for good skin and for, you know, you know whatever. Here's Paul. One thing. And he uses, this is where the race illustration comes in. He, he uses uh, the, the idea of what it takes to be a good runner. He says, I, I forget what's behind and I strain going forward. I, I, I strain for things going forward. And as I've watched my, uh, our track coach over at Tate's Creek train sprinters, this is exactly what he teaches them. The ability to run fast is all about how your body is centered on the focus of the goal you're going. So your hands, your knees, your head is all focused on the prize. At any point, if you turn to look and see where your competition is, you break stride, you lose cadence, and you, you lose speed. And that's exactly what Paul says here. We're running a race to go get a prize. And when you distract yourself by looking around at previous successes, oh, look back here what I did, remember those days, or past hurts and failures, if I stay in the background, then I lose my cadence and my ability to run, pursue this. I strain towards the prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I fix my eyes on the prize. The highest priority in life captivated Paul's attention and demands his total concentration. The tyranny of urgent needs, the clamor of popular voices, the top news of the day all take a pale second place to the one overarching goal of Paul's life. All his thoughts, imaginations, emotions, decisions are focused and fixed on one thing. The prize of God calling him heavenward. Friends, Paul is saying is the call of Christ in our lives should encourage a greater pursuit of holiness and love, not a lesser or more disconnected approach. Progress and joy in the faith are not antithetical. The only reason pursuing holiness might be a burden is if you desire the things of the world. If you desire the the things of the kingdom, then you constantly want to be pursuing those things. That's why he says, only let us hold to that which we have attained. Then verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Basically what he's saying here is, uh, there's a mature way to think about this, and if if you think otherwise, God is going to show you that. But I want to show you something interesting in the Greek language here. Look at verse 12. Go back to verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Okay, there's a Greek word, I'm not going to try to pronounce it for you, uh, but it's, 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 Here is translated perfect. Well, in verse 15, let those of us who are mature is also the same Greek word for perfect. (laughs) It's a play on words, but you can understand why the English translators translate differently because here's what Paul's saying is, hey guys, over here, I haven't become perfect. But in those of us that are perfect, this is how we act. Well, which is it, Paul? Are you perfect or are you not perfect? Well, so the English translators, and to try to, to avoid that weirdness, translate the word there mature. This is how the mature think. But let's stick with it. Let's stick with what it ought to be, which is perfect. And here's what he's saying. I have not already attained perfection. 
But the perfect walk this way. What in the world is he meaning? Well, uh, one of the greatest truths about Scripture is Scripture helps interpret Scripture. So there's a story in, uh, in the life of Jesus. And, and uh, all three of the, of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Martin, Luke, John, Matthew, Martin, Luke, all tell this story. And it's the story of the rich young ruler. So there's this, there's this rich guy who's got a lot of money. He comes up to Jesus. He said, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, the, and Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And the guy says, oh, great. Which ones? And Jesus says, love your, you know, uh, honor your mother and your father. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. He's like, oh, I've done all those. And Jesus, sensing his arrogance, says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you own and give to the poor. Then you'll be perfect. Same Greek word. Whoa. Oh, so you, so he did, and he didn't interpret that to mean, oh, so if I go sell everything, then I would have earned God's righteousness. No, what Jesus was doing was pressing on his idea of what perfection was. So you see, he had limited that to some sort of moral fulfillment that he could have. What Jesus was saying is, your path to me is through arrogance and self-righteousness, and I will have none of that. If you want to follow me, go sell everything you have, then you will be perfect. Not then you will be without sin, but then your path will be absolutely perfect and mature. That's what Paul is saying. Guys, we haven't obtained everything we want. We're going hard after God. But listen, we're perfect in our pursuit of the prize, pursuit of Christ. Let me stop here. This is very challenging if you just stop and think about this. What if Jesus turned that same question to you? What is that thing that's keeping you from being perfect. For the rich young ruler was his money. It was keeping him from laying down his righteousness and following Christ. He wanted to keep his money. He wanted his comfort, he wanted his ease, he wanted everything money could buy. That was more important to him than laying it down for Christ. But what could that be for you? This would be a great thing to talk about in your family, in your apartment, with your roommates, with your friends. What is that thing for you? Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's certain news channels. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's a hobby. Ask the question, Jesus, what is the one thing that's keeping me from perfectly following you? Not perfectly like I'm doing it all right. You understand the difference, right? Paul's saying none of us get there. It's a seed that's growing in maturity. But the direction of that seed to its maturity is toward the prize which Christ has won for you. I've probably told this illustration a thousand times in my 27 years of ministry, but I'm going to tell it a thousand and one this morning. Uh, when I was in college, I was playing basketball at, at Berry College, and um, I, had, I had just become a Christian my junior year, and my life was radically changing. And I knew there was a there was a multiplicity of things that I was at least aware of that God was going to have to work out of me, and one of those was my own sexual temp- temptations, being a young. Uh, lost athlete, yeah, the temptations were great. But I, it felt like Mount Everest. It felt like God was asking me to climb Mount Everest in these issues. Uh, you know, the whole uh, idiom of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's like, okay, well, this elephant feels pretty big. I'm gonna try to eat it one bite at a time. So I didn't, I didn't have a very developed seed theology at that moment, but I knew that if I was gonna tackle the mountain of Everest of my temptation, I needed to start small. 
And uh, right next to my apartment complex in Rome was a, a speedway or a, a shell station. I don't remember which one it was. And I love Milky Way darks and cherry Coke. I just love them. So you can buy them for me as much as you want. Just Coke Zero now, though. So cherry Coke Zero. But I would go in there and I'd get them. And I, and I thought to myself one day, I said, I wonder if I will deny myself midnight dark ch- chocolate candy bars and cherry Coke, would that teach my body and mind a pattern of saying no to bigger issues? That was my thinking. So I tried it. And praise God, that denying of myself of those luscious candy bars and cherry Coke, it helped. It helped me understand, okay, Will, you can, you can say no to this. You can pursue Christ and lay down that desire. What is your, I know it sounds stupid, and I'm sorry that your pastor is so immature, but I, I, what is your Milky Way and cherry Coke? What does God want you to lay down that might be hindering you? Look at verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I, that's where I was in my faith. I was, I was so immature. It was just Milky Ways and chocolate, I mean, and ch- cherry Coke. But you see, it was much bigger than that, right? It was much deeper than that. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What he's saying is, guys, we're going after Christ in this way. Follow us. Go with us. Imitate us. He's not saying imitate us because we're so righteous and perfect and, and spiritual. He had none of that, none of that pompous arrogance. What he was saying was, we're going after Christ. His model of humility had not arrived, but his model of pressing on, he was not settling. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. What a picture. Run after Jesus. Follow. Imitate Paul and his associates. Now verse 18. He gives the imitation of what he wants them to do, and then he gives them a warning. And we need to listen to this warning. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. Please, please hear Paul's heart here. Paul is, not, uh, Paul is not asking us to strap up our boots tighter and get tough and stop being uh, weak people. He has none of that. With tears, He is warning us about these enemies of the cross. Those same tears, as we'll see in just a minute, flow as he exhorts them to press on. This is not about self-performance or uh, self-righteousness. This is flowing from a heart of love. And here, his love is warning them. And look at the warning. There are people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I can't imagine a worse thing being said about me the cross of Christ where sin is laid to death where the wrath and judgment of God is poured on the son of God where the devil is disarmed 
where access to God and his righteousness is granted, the cross. To be an enemy of that, God, may that never be of any of us. How do you know if you're an enemy of the cross? Well, he says it. You have your mind set on earthly things. You glory in shameful stuff. Your, your God is your appetite, your belly. And the end of that is destruction. This is a very strong warning. Be careful that you don't fall into this grip of the world that denies the cross of Jesus Christ. But as the scriptures often do, right after a strong and assertive warning, there's a word, but. And I love when the Bible gives us a but. Because it says, this is true. This warning I'm giving you, but it is another way to look at it. And look at what he says, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The the folks of Philippi would have understood this language very powerfully. You see, we mentioned this when we started Philippians, but the colony of Philippi was a Roman colony. They had all the rights of Roman citizens. They might as well have been in Italy themselves. That's how much they treasured their Roman citizenship. And in fact, there were buildings found in in archaeological discoveries where inscriptions were written about Caesar Augustus, savior of the world. And so for Paul to write to this Roman colony, your citizenship is not in Rome, it's in heaven. And from there, the capital S savior of the world The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. They would have heard that as incredibly powerful. And yes, it was a direct attack on the government of that age. And I think we need to hear that. We're in an election year, right? We need to hear our citizenship is not here. The stuff of this world, the governments of this world, the Caesars of this world, they will not save us. They're at best little S's. At worst, they're dangerous demigods. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Savior language is meant to push us to who that is, which is namely Christ. And notice what he says. He will take your lowly body and transform it to his glorious body. Here's where the seed theology really kicks in. Your little acorn body is going to be, according to Isaiah 61, an oak of righteousness. That's the power subjected to Christ who brings all things under his rule. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That same power is gonna transform your little body, your lowly body into a glorious resurrected body. The contrast could not be clearer. Imitate us as we pursue Christ in maturity, fixing our attention on the heavenly citizenship versus those who live in accordance with the earthly things, who satisfy their earthly appetites and celebrate shameful things who are on a path to destruction. Fix your eyes on those people and on namely on the Lord Jesus Christ that will transform your lowly body into his glorious body. All of this is very clear. 
The seed of the kingdom being planted in you is going to bear fruit into a kingdom that will live for eternity. Now, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the scriptures, you have to ask what it's there for, <laughs> right? Therefore, well, everything I've just said, here's, here's what I want you to hear me say. My brothers and my sisters, whom I love and long for. Again, notice his heart. My joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Everything I've just told you about your citizenship in heaven, about running for the, upward, the prize for the upward call of Christ in your life, it's gonna be hard. Friends, you know history has proven this. These band of Christians under the tyrannical rule of Rome, many of them suffered martyrdom. It was coming to be incredibly difficult. His encouragement to them, stand firm. One of the commentaries I like to read at the end of a week of preparation is, is written by a guy named Ken Hughes. And I highly recommend anything he writes. But this is how he closed his cha- this chapter, this section of scripture in his commentary on this Philippians passage. And as citizens of heaven, they didn't await a pale Roman savior, a petty little Caesar, but rather the savior with a name that is above every name, Jesus, the Messiah, to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And this Savior will someday give them bodies like his own glorious body as he subjects everything in the universe to himself. So stand firm. And then he says this, and this is my prayer for you. May the body of Christ provide you with many examples to follow. May the lives of the enemies of the cross be cause for tears and alarm. May the wonders of your citizenship and your future dance in your soul. And may you stand firm in the pursuit of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What a prayer. I've been praying that all week for us, for myself, for you, that we would indeed do that. We're about to come now to the Lord's table. And as I've thought about this, we do this every week because we believe we need it every week, but also because every passage of Scripture lands at the feet of Jesus Christ. The meal we're getting ready to take is another example of the seed to tree paradigm I was giving. What you're about to take is just a little piece of bread and a little half a shot of grape juice. It's, it's nothing, is it, right? Or, or is it? It's nothing if you have an earthly view of this, but it's something incredibly eternal if you believe. What's what Jesus said about this is, this is my body given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant given for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, there can be nothing more powerful than that prize, This table represents the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So when you come this morning, come with the idea of saying, God, I want to press on. I want to stand firm. I'm willing to lay aside whatever hindrance and sin that easily distracts me. And I want to run with endurance this race that you've marked before me. And God has given you a pitiful little meal for sustenance. But oh, the grandeur of the sustenance that this meal will provide for you in that race. Amen? Let's come to the table now.
Let me pray, and then I will lead us into the Lord's Prayer. Father, we need your grace to hear this word and to live it out. Many who hear this are in places in their life, they don't feel like they can take another step. God, this morning, would you inflame their hearts and bend their knees once more to take one more step towards you. Lord, many of our friends here are are walking with you and trusting you. I pray against the arrogance that that can produce, the the resting in our laurels, the comfort of uh, staying in one place. I pray that you would alert us to see the great prize that you have captured us with and that we would press on and move towards life and joy and peace and righteousness and justice on the earth. And now, Lord, use this meal to strengthen us for the days ahead that we would indeed press on and stand firm. And so now, Christ, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever.